Have you ever felt like you've really blown it? Like you've really messed up? I don't just mean that you've missed a good opportunity. I mean really done wrong. Really done something that you have regretted. Acted in a way that seems to have irreversible repercussions, consequences. Perhaps consequences that you are still living with even today. Perhaps even many years after the event. Are there things in your life that when you lie in bed awake at night, churning over your past actions, just spring into mind and give you such a sense of regret and shame and guilt? Things that you would give almost anything to go back and change? If you're a Christian, are there times where your sinful actions have restricted you from praying? Made you feel worthless as a Christian? Made you question whether you're even a Christian at all? Could you really be saved because of this thing that you have done? What does Jesus say to us when we face those feelings of guilt and shame? What comfort, what encouragement, what instruction or rebuke does the Bible give us? What does Jesus say to those who feel like they've fallen beyond recovery? Well, that's why I want to look at these words from Luke chapter 22 today. In those words, Jesus speaks to Simon Peter. And he's not speaking after the event so that Peter can look back with regret on what he's done. But he's speaking before the event. Jesus is warning Peter. He's preparing him for what is about to follow. He's preparing him for the night of his life, which will surely go down in his memory as the most regrettable evening of his entire existence. The evening when Peter denies he even knows Jesus. The evening when Peter calls curses down upon himself in order to persuade others that he has nothing to do with this man called Jesus. The same man who Peter offered to even die with. The same man who Peter offered to follow even if it cost him his own life. Even if it cost him his freedoms. Yet Peter denies him. Not once. Not twice three times how does Jesus speak to Peter and how does he prepare him for what he's about to go through and how ought we to respond when we find ourselves in similarly regrettable situations that's what I'm going to be trying to look at this this evening and the first thing to notice in the way that Jesus speaks to Peter is to notice that Jesus says, this is an attack from Satan. Satan is making an attack on you, Peter. This is Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. What does Jesus mean by that metaphor? He's asked to, to sift you as wheat. It's hard to be precise, but we know from other texts in the Bible that this is not the first time that Satan has asked to attack one of God's people. Uh, the book of Job is a, is a prime example. Uh, 
perhaps this sifting of wheat that Jesus speaks of is like what Satan was doing with Job. Satan trying to prove what Peter's really made of. Trying to separate him into his constituent parts in order to present a picture of, look, this man claims to be all this for Jesus, but actually he's nothing. He's full of air and emptiness. Or perhaps Satan's intention, the metaphor draws more on the idea of separating wheat from chaff, separating wheat from the husk that surrounds the wheat grain. Um, Wheat would have been thrown up into the air or or passed through a sieve in order to separate the the produce, the, the wheat, from the waste. Perhaps Satan wants to pass Peter through his sieve in order to bring the waste in Peter's life to the top. Either way, it serves Satan's character as the accuser. Satan wants to highlight all the flaws in Peter's character. He wants to drag him down. He wants to give him a good shaking. He wants to make him fail. He wants to bring an accusation against Peter. This man has done wrong. He is not worthy. But significantly... According to Jesus' prayer in verse 32, Satan's end game, his, his real purpose, is not simply to make Peter uh, make a mistake. He's not simply after getting Peter to sin. He's not just about getting Peter to deny Jesus. That surely is part of what he's doing, but it's not his end game. Satan wants something more from this attack. Satan wants to make Peter's faith fail. And it's that that Jesus has to pray against. And Satan is not only out to get Peter either. Satan is out to get all of the disciples. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. That is you all, all of you disciples as wheat. He's on the prowl tonight. He's out to attack. You know, in the context of this chapter The beginning of the chapter taught us about how Satan had taken hold of Judas. And Satan was using Judas to mount his attack upon Jesus. Really, Jesus is the focus of Satan's attack. Jesus has just told his disciples in verse 28, You, my disciples, are those who stand by me in my trials. And now in verse 31, it's becoming clear that those trials that Jesus' disciples stand with him in are not necessarily his judicial trial. It's the difficulties that he faces on the way to his death. And part of those trials include being attacked by Satan. It's not only Peter who Satan desires to sift and shake. It's all of those who belong to Jesus Christ. If Satan attacks the head, he attacks the body as well. If Satan attacks Jesus, he attacks his disciples as well. And so Satan's attacks are not limited to Peter and the twelve. Satan's attacks extend to all of Jesus' followers, even today. Peter himself will later write to believers, the devil prowls around like a hungry lion, looking for people to devour and so jesus warns not just peter but indirectly us too he warns us to prepare prepare yourselves 
against the enemy. Do not underestimate him. Satan is on the hunt. He is looking for opportunity to to cause damage, to shake you, to sift you, to demolish your faith. As Christians, we have a very real and a very powerful enemy in Satan. Now, I just want to make clear at this point that, that I'm not saying these things in order to cause you to be superstitious or or to go looking for satanic activity by which we mean paranormal activity the way satan works is not by hiding behind the eyes of unsuspecting victims when satan took hold of judas it wasn't by taking control of his arms and limbs and forcing him to do things he didn't want to do no the way satan works is not normally through paranormal activity the way satan works is much more damaging much more close to home than that he uses the very relatable emotion of fear when he attacks peter he uses the love of money when he takes control of judas he uses reputation and the strength of those feelings of regret and guilt and shame in order to try and demolish faith So this warning isn't to make us superstitious about satanic activity in our life. But it's to make us sober. Realise that you are not simply a victim of chance circumstance. We are under attack. Attacks designed to shake our faith, to, to lead us into regrettable situations. To lead us into shame and guilt. With the specific intention... Of damaging our faith enough to lead us away from Christ. Satan plans his attacks. But there's good news. Because Jesus also makes a defence. These attacks of Satan, you might notice in verse 31, are limited by God. It's easy to skip over that fact when you first read it. But when you read it again, you realise Satan has had to ask to sift you as wheat. Satan can't take on this uh, this role without permission, without the freedom granted to him by God. Satan cannot put a foot out of place until God permits him to do so. That is both an encouragement, but it but it also throws up mountains of questions, doesn't it? Why would, of course, is the the first question. Why would God permit Satan to act in that way? Why would God allow Satan to carry on his work if he's got control over him, if he's able to stop him? Why does God allow evil in the first place? Why is any of this happening? Why can't God just fix it all? Why can't God just lock Satan up and keep him hidden? There's all sorts of huge questions there, which we've not got time to to answer all of them tonight. But I I would just say two things in response. The first is, whatever reason God has for allowing Satan to continue, that reason is not because God is unconcerned. The reason is not because God doesn't really care about the evil or the suffering in the world. The reason is not because God is not bothered by the situations that you have to face under the attacks of Satan. We know that because because God himself is not immune to these attacks. 
Jesus suffered at the hands of Satan. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted by Satan himself. Jesus knows what it is to find himself in situations that Satan has engineered specifically in order to damage his faith. Jesus knows what it is to suffer the pain of grief and rejection and insult and mockery and loneliness and the difficulty and frustration of poverty and seeing hypocrisy at work in the world. Jesus knows very really very closely. Jesus knows firsthand what Satan's attacks feel like. And so if God is not doing anything to stop them right now, it's not because he doesn't know how bad they are. It's not because he's unconcerned. And the second point to make is that just like with Jesus, when Jesus suffered at the attacks of Satan, God is able to use even evil situations for good purposes. That's not to call good things evil, but it is to say God can use Satan's attacks for his own good purposes. It wasn't a good thing that Christ was betrayed and lied against at his trial and crucified. God used it for good. God used it to be the means by which me and you can receive forgiveness. So although the question of evil in the world is a huge one and a difficult one, we can at least say God is not ignoring the problem. And God can use even the worst things to bring about good. And then Peter goes on and encourages, uh, Jesus goes on and encourages Peter further by saying, Peter, I have prayed for you. Jesus' words are now singular, specific. Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you. I know your situation. I know what you are going to go through. And I have prayed for you. Hebrews 4, which John read for us, teaches us that Jesus doesn't just pray for Peter. Jesus prays for all of his people. He lives and breathes every single day of our existence in order to pray, to intercede for us on our behalf. He lives each day to make intercession. But what are those prayers for? Now, interestingly, given what Peter was about to face, you might think that Jesus was praying against it. Peter, I've prayed that you would not be tempted. Peter, I've prayed that Satan would not be allowed to attack you. But that's not how Jesus prays. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't pray for us to avoid the temptations and attacks of Satan. He doesn't pray that God would limit our exposure to the evil one. He prays that our faith may persevere in the face of those attacks. He prays, verse 32, that your faith may not fail. And again, that's not because Jesus underestimates the seriousness or the difficulty of the temptations we face. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he had to be encouraged, built up, strengthened by angels who came and ministered to him after that event. Peter, uh, Jesus knows that it's It's no walk in the park to be tempted. 
But his prayer is that faith would stand firm. Jesus persevered through his temptations. But that doesn't make him unsympathetic. Again, Hebrews reminds us, we do not have a saviour who is unable to sympathise. We have one who is tempted in every way just as we are. So Jesus prays that Peter's faith would not fail. But here's the rub. Because when you and I experience those times of utmost regret and guilt and shame, when we have suffered under the attack of Satan, when we have fallen for his temptations, when we have done things that that we just would give anything to go back and change, doesn't it in that moment, even for many years after, feel like you're a failure? Doesn't that feel like failure? Isn't it failure when you sin to such an extent? When you do such morally impure things? Not according to Jesus. That's not total failure. Yes, it is faithless to be disobedient to God. Yes, it is faithless to sin. Yes, it's not the way a Christian should be acting when we follow Satan's temptations. But it's not an utter failure of faith. Persevering faith doesn't necessarily make for a person who does no wrong. Persevering faith doesn't necessarily make for a person who does no wrong. Instead, Persevering faith makes for a person who will turn back. Who turns away from sin. Who turns back to Christ. It's the last thing that we want to do in that moment, isn't it? But it's the very thing that we need to do. It's the very thing that Jesus assumes Peter will do. If his faith isn't going to fail. Peter, I've prayed that your faith will not fail, and therefore I know it won't. So therefore I know that you will turn back. And when you have turned back, Peter, strengthen your brothers. The main point of my message this evening is this. When we face the attacks of Satan, which will come, despite the defence that Jesus makes in our place, When we face the attacks of Satan and when we fall, don't run from Jesus, but turn back to him. Don't hide your face from Jesus, but approach him. Don't stop praying to Jesus, but pray to him more. When you feel worthless because of the wrong that you have done, don't withdraw from God, but approach him. Here's why. Faith is not about presenting yourself as worthy. Faith in Jesus is not trying to live a morally good life. To live up to the standard. To make yourself acceptable. That is not what faith is. In fact, faith is is almost the opposite of those things. Faith, Christian faith, 
is recognising my own weakness. Recognising that I have nothing to offer. And instead of depending on my goodness, instead clinging to Jesus. Trusting his sacrifice on my behalf. Now when we make a mess of our lives, when we fall into sin and, and, and do those things that we regret, perhaps we, in that moment, assume ourselves to be just unable to return to God. And when we assume those things, it's as if, it's as if we're saying, here's what happened. All along, I had something to contribute. However small, I had at least something that made me worthwhile. I had at least something that made me honourable. I had at least something that meant God would be pleased with me. And now my sin has just become so great that even what I had has been taken from me or even that small amount I had is no longer good enough. And so I can no longer come to God. That attitude that says... I have something to offer. However small it is, however insignificant, that attitude reveals the point at which faith has really failed. That attitude reveals the point at which faith has really failed. Or similarly, the, the, the attitude that perhaps doesn't rely on self, but, but similarly it says, look, my sin is so bad, there is no sacrifice left to cover it. There is no way that Jesus would forgive me a second time. There is no way that God's justice can be satisfied again for this sin that I have committed. That attitude similarly reveals the point at which faith has failed. And that is the victory of Satan. That is when he wins. When he convinces you of those things. When he convinces you that this, this accuser, this liar, this twister of God's word, when he convinces you that God will not accept you because you're not good enough. And when you begin to believe those words, that is when faith begins to fail. On that evening, the scriptures seem to put a spotlight on at least two disciples in particular and their failures. One is... Judas and the other is Peter both of them failed both of them denied Jesus both of them rejected him both of them responded with sorrow both of them were upset for what they had done but only one responded in faith Judas's sorrow caused him to realise, caused him to think that there was no sacrifice left for him. There was no way he could return to God. There was no way Jesus would accept him now. And so he took his own life. Peter, as sorrowful as he was for what he had done, as much regret as he felt in his soul for denying his saviour Jesus, he responded in faith and he turned back to Jesus. On the Sunday, he was found with the disciples, perhaps strengthening them at that time. Peter was one of the first to the empty tomb. Peter was one of the first to meet the risen 
Jesus. His faith meant that he turned back to Jesus, even in that moment of his deepest regret and his greatest sense of guilt and shame. What sin has Satan snared you with recently? Anger? Jealousy? Covetousness? Unbelief? Lust? Pride? Arrogance? Perhaps you feel simply that Satan has so dulled your conscience that you wonder if there's any goodness left in you at all. You can hear him taunting you even now. You're not good enough, he says. There's no way back. He won't have you. Call yourself a real Christian. Don't listen to him. He's a liar. He's a liar. I don't mean by that that you are worthy. I don't mean by that that you do have something in you that God will, would, would, would be pleased with. He's a liar because he wants you to think that you were ever accepted on your performance. And you were not. You are only accepted through the righteousness of Christ given to you freely as a gift to all who come to him in faith. Turn back to Jesus when you find yourself trapped in sin. Not only will you find mercy and forgiveness, Hebrews 4 also tells us you will find grace. Grace to help you. Grace to help you stand against Satan's temptations and accusations. When Satan attacks, turn back to Jesus. Our closing hymn is very honest about the difficulties that Christians face. And some of the lines perhaps seem a little bit raw to some of us when they describe just how easy it is for us to fall in weakness. But the chorus repeated time and time and time and time again throughout this song is designed to remind you, to remind yourself, to remind those that you sing with that Jesus is stronger than Satan. He has defeated him and we are not accepted based upon anything in us, but upon Christ's goodness towards us. He will hold me fast. Let's sing this last song together.